If you would, please take your Bibles out and turn them over to Ruth chapter 3. There we resume our study this morning. Uh, We will finish Ruth chapter 3. As you know, if you've been with us any amount of time or have been listening online, we have been making our way through this glorious book of the Old Testament, a very short narrative, but a short narrative with a great deal of impact for how we view the Lord, how we view life, how we handle life's difficulties, and how we carry ourselves in a culture of death and evil. Uh, So when we look at the culture of the judges, it is not so different from the culture in which we now live. Each did what was right in his own eyes, or or rather, in those days there was no king in Israel, so each did what was right in his own eyes. And as I've said to you before, the implication of that is if Yahweh, the Lord, is king, and the people of the period of the judges are not acknowledging a king in Israel, they are living as if there is no king, right? And so it's easy in a culture that is saturated with death and immorality to live as if there is no overarching divine, objective divine principle, or in this case, a divine person, not merely an idea, but a person who sovereignly reigns and rules and has an ethic of righteousness by which humanity is supposed to live. And so Ruth, as you've heard me often say, is that spike of pearl in a sea of all that is black and dead that reminds us even in hard times, even in a culture of death, even in a culture saturated with wickedness, we can live for God, we can do what is right, and we can be pleasing to the Lord and serve one another. And I love the simplicity that Ruth does for us in that, as it brings this very simple story to the forefront where there is no dragon slayer, there is no complex character. The characters are very simple, The direction they're going is very straightforward. The needs are very plain, and the end is completely in keeping with the character of God. And so it's beautiful. It's beautiful in its simplicity, but there is a complexity here to it. It's how do we live, how do we live righteously in a sea, in a culture that seeks to extol what is wicked, as Roman ones would say, calling what is evil good. Well, that's not always easy, is it, to make a stand for what is good in a culture that not only embraces evil, but calls evil good and good evil. So now to make a stand based on ethic or what is righteous and good in our culture is often called hatred or or bigotry or on the wrong side of history, which is my favorite phrase that gets tossed around. And please read all the sarcasm into that you can, because that's exactly how I mean it. The wrong side of history, beloved, as if it's a threat that for standing for righteousness, you will be on the wrong side of history. I haven't read about a martyr yet who I thought was on the wrong side of history. I'm not asking you to go be martyred, but I'm saying when people make a stand for truth, they're rarely remembered as being on the wrong side of history, and they're never remembered by being on the wrong side of history by the people of God. So this morning, we bring chapter 3 of Ruth to a close, looking at verses 14 to 18. And so without further delay, let's turn our attention there. This morning, Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 18, going or 14 rather, starting in verse 14 and going to the end of the chapter. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant Word. So she lay at His feet until the morning… But arose before one could recognize another. 
And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and then put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, we, we yield this time to You. This is Your time. This is Your Word. And I, and I pray that You would capture our hearts. I pray that You would capture our hearts and pierce them to the very depths, to the very core with Your truth and Your Word and Your power so that we might be transformed. Not because this morning we've heard a, a good sermon or a sermon in general, but because we have been confronted by a great Savior who can do great things in our lives and hearts. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. You know, we live in a time of, of cosmetic surgeries and makeovers and all sorts of things. And when we think about cosmetics and cosmetic surgeries, and I'm not here to judge anybody about anything. I'm simply making a point here this morning. The often the goal of those, and you hear it, it's all in commercials, it's all in literature, is to make a new you. We're going to give you a new you. We're going to make you look different, and it's going to be a new you. Well, there's a problem there. It's not a new you. You just look different. And, I, and I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to be judgmental. Please don't walk away from this, and the only thing you hear is the pastor said, if you've done, da, da, da. no, that's not it. I'm trying to help us understand that a new you doesn't begin on the outside. A new you actually begins on the inside. And so when we want to talk about newness and renewal, it's not going to be through anything cosmetic so much as it's going to be through a drastic heart change. That's where a new you actually begins. We can do all sorts of things, and I'm all for all the creams and lotions and the various things and berries and whatnot you want to do, but my point is, man, I really kind of dug myself a hole with this illustration this morning. <laughs> starting to sweat a little bit. I'm not judging you, anybody in this room, I promise you. I really had a very central point here. Sometimes these outward changes do give us a boost in self-perception, but a, simply a boost in self-perception is not what we need. Those can be helpful. Those can give confidence. Those may make us feel better. But really, what we need is something that doesn't just mask the ravages of time for a, for a shorter season, but really gets at the core of who we are, a real transformation, a real renewal, a real life change that begins in the heart. See, newness is an inner work, and it works its way out. So on the day in which you were saved, you were beginning to be made new by Christ. A new you had come, and the old was slowly and is slowly being worked out. So newness is not really about looks. It's not really about cosmetics. It is all about recreation, being redeemed, being rescued, having the image of Christ being reformed and restored in us to a point to where the new us is a reflection of Jesus to the world. That's the newness that the Scriptures would have us 
work toward it. We find this in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, right, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new, or however your translation may read it. Now, remember, in the context of that particular passage, Paul is telling the Corinthians, hey, don't let anyone continue to regard you according to the flesh, because now in Christ, you're not of the flesh. You're of Jesus. And being of Jesus, you're a new creation. And as a new creation, the image of God or the image of Christ in you is no longer deformed or messed up. It's been reshaped. It's been reformed to accurately reflect who God is to the world. And so rather than live our lives in ways that allow people to miss the image of Christ in us as believers, we need to be living in such a way that people see Jesus reflected from us because that's who we are. That is, I use this word all the time because I'm trying to redeem it, that is our identity, period. And that doesn't have to be qualified with any other thing. That is just who we are. We're new in Christ. As our brother Christian used to like to remind us, we are saints. We've been transformed from sinners into saints. And so that is a powerful reality that we hang on to that we remember. We're something new. We're not the same. And so newness is not in our appearance, right? It's in our standing. It's in our position. It's in where we are now as opposed to where we were. We were lost in death. We were lost in sin, We were lost in all manner of wickedness, but now we are found. We were blind, but now we we see. We were dead, but now we're alive. And, And that is the transition. That is the identity that we now inhabit. And it makes a difference for how we live our lives because in Christ, all things are made new. And so we can't remain the same. We can't live the same way. We can't, we can't, we can't uh, offer ourselves like we once did to the things of this world because we have a new identity, and we see this in Ruth. When you look at Ruth, it's a book of dynamic characters. What is a dynamic character? Well, in literature, a dynamic character, is, this is an oversimplified definition, a character who changes throughout the story. They start one way, and they end another. There are several books, which I will not recommend right now, that are filled with great Uh, examples of dynamic characters. But biblically speaking, Ruth is one of them. Ruth changes from Moabite to Yahweh lover. Uh, Naomi changes from bitter and empty to joyful and full. Boaz changes from uh, single and lonely because he went to (laughs) farmersonly.com. See, that joke works if you think about it because he was… anyway. Boaz changes from single and and childless to married. So you have all these dynamic characters that do in the end, they they change. They're on a trajectory that's different. They end where different from where they started. So Ruth is a book of dynamic characters. God moves in Ruth and in the lives of others. We see blessing, we see redemption, and we see what it does to those who experience it and how they end up reflecting that to the world. It becomes vital and important. So God doesn't just want to rescue you. And and there's somebody in this room here that needs to hear that because sometimes we can live as, well, God has rescued me. I just got to do the rest. Beloved, that's not the gospel. 
is, is there something for us to do as believers? You better believe it. You better believe we need to live our lives loving and serving and walking in obedience. But God is not in the business of simply just rescuing people and telling us to do the rest. He intends to radically change us to the point that rescue is the beginning. Transformation is what carries us until the day that we see Jesus. And on that road to transformation, we start having these epiphanies of understanding. Grace liberates me to love with abandon. Grace liberates me to obey the Word of God and not fear man. Grace liberates me to be a seeker of truth, to speak said truth in love, and to love boldly. Grace liberates us to live and live like and imitate Christ in the world. So yes, we are rescued for a purpose, but God's purpose is so much larger than just keeping us from going to hell. It's to build a new living mindset in us that accurately reflects the imago Dei, the image of God in us. And so this morning, without further delay... There are two, there, there, there's a main idea I want for us to see from the text, and it's all about new identity. It's this, that rest and provision, rest and provision are the fruit of our new identity, that rest and provision are the fruit of our new identity. Now, I'll, allow me t- just to get somewhat technical here. If you, if you break down this paragraph, Ruth 14 to 18, it actually forms what's called a chiasm. Now, if you're wondering what a chiasm is, it's a structure of literature that takes similar ideas and it forms a a structure or a pattern. So, if you look at 14 and 18, they're connected by rest. 15 and 17 are connected by provision. And it gets to the pinnacle of this paragraph, the climax of this paragraph. What this paragraph is working towards really is found in verse 16. And it doesn't come out in your English text, and I'm going to talk to you about this in a minute, but there's a question that Ruth, or rather that Naomi asks Ruth, that gets to the heart of the whole book of Ruth, right here in a verse that you might normally just read right over and miss it, because the English text doesn't accurately bring out exactly what the Hebrew says. And so this morning, firstly, as we're looking through this, as we're thinking about rest and provision being the fruit of the new identity, we get the, the rest aspect. In verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning, the, the idea of rest. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. What's verse 18 say? Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. So in other words, Ruth, again, is told to rest. But then we're told the man will not rest until the matter is solved. And so you're starting to get a a view for what is a theme, what is a principle in Ruth, right? Well, Ruth can rest because the Redeemer is at work, right? We can rest as believers because the Redeemer really is laboring for our good and for our hope and for our joy and for our peace and for our growth and all the things that we want to add in there. So how, how do we rest as believers? Well, what, why? Let me ask it this way. Why can we rest as believers? Well, when we are suffering from restlessness, right, when we're not resting well as believers, and I don't mean sleeping, 
I mean rest and the idea that we're waiting on the Lord. When we don't do that well, it's because we're struggling with faith and we are struggling with submission. We don't want to submit to the plan of someone else and we're having a hard time trusting and believing that someone else, in our case Christ, might be working for our good in a way that we can't do. And so often when we struggle with that sense of restlessness, we need to ask the Holy Spirit, are we doubting the goodness of God? Are we struggling to walk trusting in the faithfulness of God? Those are questions I've had to ask myself repeatedly in my life, and to this day I still have to ask because when I'm not willing to wait and rest, often it's because I think I might have a better plan. But we find Ruth here, so she lay at his feet and, and in the morning, or she lay at his feet until the morning, rather, but arose before one could recognize another. I love this idea. Now, literally, if you were to look at this in Hebrew, we, we often think, and I've said this before, that we think of Ruth being perpendicular to Boaz, so she lays down perpendicular at his feet. The Hebrew word there for feet is not strictly relegated to just the actual feet on a human being. It could be the legs, the lower extremities. So it's, it's, it's most likely that Ruth is kind of in some sense laying parallel with Boaz, but don't think of all the romantic implications of that. Just think in some, in some ways lower than him, but parallel with his legs. So look at where she is. She's, she's laying with Boaz. She's laying at the feet of Boaz. And so what does that tell us right off the bat? She slept well, as I said last week. And there was no pacing. There was no worrying. We don't, we don't read of her sitting up, hugging her knees, saying, what are we going to do? There's rest. She's asleep because she really does believe Boaz can redeem the family, can do what they think he can do. Beloved, that, don't, don't, don't read over that. Read of this as this is a woman who yields to what is right and good, even though she doesn't know the outcome. The easiest thing for us in the world to do is to pace and worry, and it comes naturally. But how are our lives transformed when in those moments where the propensity to worry is there, but we have opportunities to rest? And I haven't mastered this myself. I'm still learning and growing. But we see this in Ruth, and this is another reason, this is another layer to this story. Why else can she rest at Boaz's feet? Because she thinks he's going to do the right thing. So what has he done? He's shown himself to be a trustworthy person, a man of integrity, one whose word means something. His word carries weight because he keeps his word. He doesn't violate the trust of others. He does what he says he will do. So naturally, she feels at rest in his presence even when she is vulnerable. Now imagine, put yourself in this situation. A, humans don't typically like to be vulnerable because it exposes weakness. But two, and then trusting that another person is not going to take that vulnerability and just crush it to smithereens, beloved, that takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of hope. It takes a lot of peace. And here we find it, right here. Why can she rest? Because she actually believes that Boaz will do what Boaz says he will do, that he will show honor, that he will show regard, that he will be gracious so that when we know that one is working for our good, we can rest in that. We can rest in that righteousness. And so we apply that to Christ. When we know and we're convinced that Jesus is actually working for our good, no matter how the circumstances might look, we can rest in that righteousness. 
which is exactly why Martin Luther could write, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You, you write stuff and you believe stuff like that because you trust in the goodness of the one who keeps us. Ruth finds herself at rest, resting in the one who keeps them. And so when you, when you see what motivates Ruth, well, obviously compassion. Boaz has consistently guarded the purity of Ruth. She understands he's committed to those things that are right. And when we think about rest, another means to rest is purity, conducting ourselves in a way that we have a clear conscience. Don't you love that about Ruth and Boaz? They do everything right. Uh, now, again, now, again, we might could take issue with Naomi's advice. Hey, walk between these big heaping pipe, piles of grain in the, in the dead of night, and, and surely nobody's going to mess with you. Yeah, we can take issue with that one way or another. That's not the point here. The point is, is that Boaz and Ruth can both rest because they've done it the right way. They have a clear conscience. What a beauty a clear conscience is because that is a means to rest. Rest comes Hardly, if at all, when we are marred by or tortured by a conscience that is not pure or clean. You see this in Boaz and Ruth again and again and again when they choose the right thing. But I love in verse 18, it carries, our, it carries on this motif of rest. So it, rest is a product, is a fruit of righteousness and honor. Look. And so she replied, that is Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, again. That's an express command telling her to wait. Wait until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest. You can rest because the one whom you need will not wait. You can wait because he won't wait. You can rest because he's not slack in his duty. He's not derelict in his obligation. He's going to do what is right by you and by us. And I love the urgency that we see in this Goel, which is what he's called, the kinsman redeemer. The urgency is, I want to rectify this situation and give Ruth the safety and redemption that she's looking for in this union. So he's not going to rest. He's going to labor to capture Ruth, to care for Ruth and Naomi. And why, when we look at this, if every Scripture, as Jesus told the, road, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, if every Scripture speaks about Jesus, what does this say to us about Jesus? Well, it reminds us that Boaz is kind of a figure of Jesus in that he is a Redeemer, and he gives lavishly and lovingly so that Ruth might be saved. Not her soul, mind you but literally saved from death and destruction and the loss of everything good. And what do the Scriptures remind us here, friends? It reminds us that rest is never going to be found in the right job, right? The right salary, the right political leader, or anything else this world offers. If you have a job you love, God bless you and may your tribe increase. If you make a good salary, God bless you and may your tribe increase. 
But those things aren't what give rest. Those are a nice gift from the Lord. Real rest comes from being grounded in Christ Himself. And that one who says, God made Him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So taking away all the things that rob us of rest and life and giving us that very thing, so that now all the other stuff is an added bonus. Because if God takes away that right job or that high salary, it's not going to take away our rest. That remains. And so rest is a beautiful truth of the Christian life, and it's elusive in a culture who looks for it in identity that is incongruent with who God is. It looks for it in pleasure of all manner, all manner of pleasures, and looks for it in everything where it can, in every place where it can't be found. Rest only comes in Jesus. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, maybe you think I'm overplaying my hand on that one. You talk to somebody who knows the Lord Jesus who has walked through real tragedy, and you ask them, what got you through that tragedy? And I guarantee you, I would bet my next paycheck on it. They're not going to tell you, well, I had a really great job. My salary was phenomenal. Hey, the, the political guy I wanted in office was rocking it. They're going to tell you nothing but Jesus did. We had nothing in those deep, dark nights of the soul but Jesus. And beloved, that's how we know where real rest is found. Because when we are rocked to the core of who we are, what is our hope? Jesus Christ. So we see this rest in verse 14 and 18. But look at this provisionary statements that come. I mean, 15 and 17 are, are almost identical. He said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. He measured out, literally, and he measured six barleys and put it on her. Then she went to the city, 17. These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And so when we look at this, what is, what is well, it's a, it's a lavish, it's a plentiful provision, but also reminds us about the Lord's provision for his, his bride. Now, why does Boaz give this? And, and by the way, six measures of barley is not technically what it says in the Hebrew. It literally does say six barleys. So what, how much did he give her? I don't know. Enough that she could carry, but also a lot. Now, why? Why would he do that? A, he's generous. He is a man who is created in the image of Yahweh, and he gives. But B, because the man has intentions. The giving of the generous gift is telling Naomi and Ruth, I have intentions to do for you what you've asked of me. So, in other words, he's letting Naomi know, I'm giving lavishly because I'm intending to do something here. So, in other words, he's choosing grace as the medium through which he, he, he speaks to speak of what he will do. He's going to be a blessing. He's going to give generously. What is he reminding Ruth and Naomi? Now, remember, remember, Naomi says, I went away full and I came back empty. So, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. It's what we read about in the first chapter. What Boaz does here. As he reminds both Naomi and Ruth, they are not empty. They are indeed full. That the Lord has not abandoned them. That though their road was hard, though their nights were dark, though the way has been painful, God has not forgotten them. 
God has not left them empty. They may feel empty, but they're not. Perhaps that might resonate with some of you this morning. You may feel empty, but we're not. You know, I'll confess, I go through seasons of feeling empty, dry, weary, distant from God. Like, God, don't call me Brad, broad meadow. Call me Mara, because I'm bitter. Texts like this remind us that, yeah, those, those things happen to every single one of us, and that God is not far away. God is a good God who gives blessing. So, what is redeeming grace here? That God is in our midst. He's leading us and caring for us. And for us, because we are His, we are lavished with His grace. The six measures of barley are these six barley. It's like I said, it doesn't say exactly how much it was, but it's a lot. It's enough to declare intentions. It's enough to say, hey, I'm going to care for you. I've got you. And so we have this expression of fullness. So when you see this gift of Boaz, I don't want us to just think that it's merely a sack full of grain. It is that, but it's more than that. It's in some senses a restorative gift from Boaz. So let's call it, it's restorative grace, restorative grace. In other words, you lost in that culture everything other than your lives, but God has not been absent. And so we see this restoration that happens. And here I want to remind us, because it's real easy to do this. Sometimes God gives these gracious, lavish gifts, and it's easy to hope in them and the gift. But God doesn't give for that. The lavish gifts are an expression of grace. The, the miracles that Jesus performed were not so that people would believe in the power of it, it's they would believe in the one giving it. The provision of God is not so that we begin to believe in and trust in the provision, it's that we trust in the provider. Beloved, it's in the human heart to choose that idolatry again and again. God, can't you just get me back to where I was when you gave me X? God, can't you just restore my heart back to where it was when I had X? Do you hear the problem? And it's great. Restoration and, and renewal are great. But the problem is, is we'll idolize the things given or the time periods in which they were given and think, if I could just have that thing again or get back to that period, then I'll be happy. And it doesn't work that way. I'm preaching to me at this point. Because it's just so easy to get locked into that idolatrous mindset of this thing or this event or this moment is going to give me that thing. And those things, those events, and those moments are never meant to be the end-all, be-all. They're expressions of God's faithfulness to us in those moments. They're that reminder that we're loved and not forgotten. There used to be this uh, enter the worship circle. Some of you may remember that. It's old. They had this song that was one of mine and Rachel's favorites, uh, I Will Not Forget You, You Are My God, My King. And just that reminder that because God doesn't forget us, we, we can live remembering who He is and what He does, and even in our leanest seasons. So when we think about the provision, we think about the provider. Provision should always lead us to a love relationship with the provider and God's economy. That's exactly how it should work. Now, 
all of this is just build up, right? And it's good, it's needed, it's necessary. All of that really is just build up to verse 16. And you may have read verse 16 and you may be scratching your head. Like, what is he talking about? And she said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. Oh, I'm sorry, that's 15. (laughs) You were really confused. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. Now, why am I making such a to-do about this verse? Because I don't know how many of your translations that you're looking at say, how did you fare, my daughter? That is not strictly what the Hebrew says. What the Hebrew actually says is, who are you, my daughter? Brad, why is that important? Because Naomi asks Ruth an identity question. Now, if you'll remember, back in chapter 2, I think it's verse 5, when Boaz sees Ruth for the first time, who is she? In other words, who does she belong to? Whose is she? And before we get into modern parlance, this is not demeaning women. And he's not trying to demean women. The Bible is not trying to demean women and say they're nothing more than child or property. That's not the point. Those are identity questions. Of what tribe is she? Of what people is she? Who's God or what God does she serve? Those are the types of identity questions that ancient Hebrews asked. So when Ruth comes strolling up with her garment strapped to her back, filled with barley, and Ru- or Naomi rather asks her the question, who are you? She's getting at something fundamental to this story. In other words, are you Ruth the Moabite or are you now Ruth the Boazite? And she's asking her an identity question. How did you fare may get the sense of it, and I think it kind of does. In other words, hey, how did it go? Are, are we good? You know, in modern day things, yeah, hey, uh, yeah, yeah. But really, who are you? And you know why? That's because even in ancient Israel, they understood that redemption doesn't just change a circumstance, it changes an identity. Now you're not just Ruth the Moabitess. You are now Ruth who is to Boaz and who will eventually be part of the family of Elimelech, who will eventually give birth to one who will be in the lineage of David, who is in the lineage of Jesus. But don't you see what happens is that this woman who's redeemed begins to bear the name of the Redeemer. Now she's not just Ruth. Now she's Boaz's wife. And again, please don't read anything negative into that, other than just to say that when anybody is redeemed, they go through an identity change of epic proportions. I'm no longer just Brad. I'm beloved by Christ. I'm renewed. I'm restored. I'm on my way to something more glorious than I can possibly imagine right now. And so that this redemption and this rescue, it doesn't merely change a circumstance. It does do that. It does do that. But it's more than that, right? It's bigger than that. Now, Ruth won't merely just have the corner of Boaz's garment covering her, who have the wings of the sovereign Lord and His goodness over her, and Boaz will be a source of life and love and protection and provision for this woman. And you know what? Guess what? It didn't have to be perfect. I love that the Puritans gave us the notion of romance and marriage. It is a gift. But, beloved, can't we just see that in this moment, 
Ruth wasn't looking for the Daniel Steele novel with Boaz. What she was, that's an old name. Some of you might not even remember who that is. What she was looking for was all the things necessary to live and thrive, however imperfect. Oh, man, this will preach, right? Can, can we get into to, to marriages where things are not perfect? Yeah, if you're married today, your marriage is not perfect. And I don't care how little your kids see you fight. You know it's not perfect. It doesn't have to be, Right? Man, can we just appreciate the things that beautiful relationships like that do for us and then let it expand our horizons on how we understand God's love and pursuit of us that when we were unfaithful, the Redeemer pursued us. This morning, if you call Christ Lord, whether you have my testimony or my wife's, the Redeemer pursued you in some way and captured you and brought you in. Amen. And it is a relationship defined by our imperfections and His constant pursuit. Why? Because we're so beautiful and lovely? No, that's not it. Because we've been given a new identity, and we're His now, and He obligates Himself to us. You won't find a better deal anywhere else you look. You won't find that even in your earthly marriages, not to the degree that Christ does it. So we live in the shadow of His wing, under His rock, in His fortress. And what that makes us is a bride of worth. Ruth is not just a Moabitess anymore. In fact, she's not a Moabitess anymore. Anymore. She's Ruth, Boaz's wife, loved by Boaz, captured by Yahweh, sealed for eternity. That is a blessing. So we want to talk about identity statements. Those are the identity statements worth making. I'm not an orphan. I'm not lost. I'm not dead. I'm a child. I'm found. I'm alive. I'm the bride of Christ. And so if that's true, right, if this statement is true, my daughter, how did you fare, or who are you? And then she told her all that the man had done. Look at how she describes, who are you? Literally, who are you, and how does Ruth respond by all that Boaz did? This is my identity. Listen to what he did. So can you see that she begins already now, the, the essence, the foundational to her identity is what Boaz is doing. Foundational to our identity is what G Jesus is doing. I almost called him Giaz. <laughs> what Jesus is doing on our behalf. Beloved, it's beautiful. It's arresting. Man, it gives us hope. I hope it gives you hope this morning. That's what it's designed to do. You know, one of the most unrestful things that we do is pursue a life that is incongruent with the new life of Christ. You know this. I know it. We have died to worldliness and the like and to pursue those things is going to cause grief. It's going to cause strife. It's going to cause toil. It's going to disrupt relationships. It's going to make us selfish and insufferable if we do that. But what does it look like to say? Before I say that, I want to say this. Addiction is a, is a horrible thing. When you're dealing with addiction, it, it's, it's murder. It's terrible. One of the things when I'm walking through people with addiction, having been there myself, I understand the reality of what it means to come out from it and ask yourself, what happens if we say no to this thing? What happens? 
you know what? Nothing earth-shattering. You battle, you say no, and then you get up the next day and you do it again. And then the next day, you do it again. And then the next day, you do it again. And there's not going to be stadiums of people cheering us on. There's going to be walking in the hope that every day that we say no to the flesh and yes to righteousness, that we're being transformed more and more, and that the old is passing away. Beloved, that preaches to the Christian life. Whatever relationships, whatever lives we're living, we are in Christ this morning if we call Him Lord, and we have been redeemed. And that means resting in His goodness, in His will, and in His Word, trusting in His generous provision, and saying yes to the Spirit and no to the flesh. What happens if you say no to the flesh? If you start today saying no to the flesh, here's what I promise you. Tomorrow morning, you're not going to wake up and regret it. If you say yes to the Spirit, tomorrow morning, you'll wake up slightly more restful, very thankful, and with a renewed sense of, I can walk and rest in the provision of Christ. I'm so glad Ruth said yes to rest. I'm so glad Ruth said yes to Boaz. I'm so glad Boaz laid everything else aside in a period where he could have acted evilly like everybody else was doing and said yes to righteousness. It transforms everything. New identity transforms everything. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning and its power. Oh, the ripple effect of this is eternal. And we needed it. God, I needed this this morning. There are souls in this room that needed this this morning. And Father, may it not be lost on us. We are new. Our identity is new. Our lives are new. And so we have hope in the world. Be with us, I pray. Oh, Father, when we stumble, help us to get back up. When we fall down, help us to not wallow in the grief and regret, but to stand firm on the righteousness of Christ that we might walk and live in newness. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.